Hey guys, welcome, welcome to another episode. Hello, hello, hello. I hope everyone is doing well. Yes, yes, everyone's safe and healthy. Uh, tonight, tonight we have another special guest that's joining us. Her name is Renee Burrell. She's a licensed social worker as well as a certified sex therapist. Um, her skills are psychotherapist and educator with specializations in sex therapy and trauma. Her practice, Pandora's Awakening, offers services and educational outreach that help destigmatize mental and sexual health issues. Uh, she's skilled as a facilitator, offering trainings and workshops to healthcare and social service professionals on mental health, sexual health, and reproductive justice. Please welcome Renee. How are you? I am doing good. Well, thank you for having me. You know, it's been a long day, so. Hopefully I can bring the energy still, but just like to let everybody know. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's been, a, yeah. It's, it's kind of an interesting thing to finish with clients and work and doing whatever I'm doing and then um, trying to shed light in this way. Yes. I mean, we just had to put our little guy down just now. It was like a long day. I had him all day with me. So I was like, ah, oh, my wife just came in to give me a break. <laughs> it's still not a break. Yeah. <laughs> so, Ray. So I- great that y'all are offering this to people yes and we appreciate you making the time so basically what got you into this field like what made you decide like this is the field for you um you know that's kind of like a common question everyone gives me (laughs) and I'm always like I can't say I naturally this was like something I knew I wanted to do from an early age yeah it's probably always kind of shadowing in some ways like I feel I feel like if one of the, if you were to watch a movie where there's always something that's eating at you, but you don't really know exactly how to get into it or what to do, that's kind of what um, my journey has been when it comes to sex therapy and sexual health work. Um, but you know, being um, I like to just be very honest. You know, being African American woman raised in the South, you know, it was like you didn't see anybody who was doing this work. And if you were doing this work, there were certain types of reputations or certain kinds of um, images that people had of you. Um, but however, I've, through my life experiences and my own personal journey, I've, I've always been open and honest with talking to people about what's going on and um, where they sit when it comes to their sexual health needs as well as my own. So because I've always been able to hold space for someone, for other people and not really give people judgment around whatever their issues are and what's happening. It kind of just every one of my friends one day was just like, Renee, you should really consider selling sex toys <laughs> because <laughs> I was really just tired and burnt out of just doing like I was doing medical social work at that time. Yeah. And I was just like, you know, I don't know about that. And they're like, well, you're so great at talking about sex and this and that. And I'm like, yeah, I'm great at talking about it with my friends and people who are close to me. And one-on-one with people, but I don't know about doing parties and things like, and things that are kind of more open and public. But then when I did more soul searching, I was like, you know, I already have my, um, my therapy license if I want to go in that route. So if I'm going to do something like bedroom candy, maybe I should kind of look into getting more education on being a sex therapist. And I was like, that seems interesting, but I kind of was just looking at it, but didn't really know I was going to take it seriously. And then when I really looked, I was like, you know, this actually fits me. And maybe I should kind of look into getting more education. And I applied to the University of Michigan program, got into that program. I was doing the bedroom candy at the same same time. And while I was doing bedroom candy, 
um, people just were just very misinformed. And mm. it was great. People were able to joke and have fun about talking about sex, but they really weren't talking about what was real and deeper underneath. But when I would take people in the back room, then all of a sudden people would be like, you know, I'm really struggling with this. I'm really struggling with that. And it was like, you know, we really kind of have to have more representation in this field. And personally, I didn't recognize, I thought I wasn't going to be a pioneer. I figured there were plenty of other people of color who were doing this work. And I actually was the first certified sex therapist in the state of Tennessee. Um, wow. And for a while, I was the only person practicing doing this work. Now there's two others. There's one, she's actually practicing in California, but she's licensed in Tennessee also. So she does some virtual things. But there's also one other person who actually has a home base in Tennessee that does this work. So um, I think if I were to simplify that answer, it was a taboo where nobody else was doing the work. And for me, I'm kind of just naturally attracted to taboos and holding space for people in spaces that are uncomfortable. Wow. Okay, so let's take it back. What exactly is sex therapy? Um, so I always um, like to say, you know, a lot of people think of sex therapy and they think of sex therapy. So there's a movie called The Sessions with Helen Hunt, I believe, uh, where she is actually a sex surrogate, where she's there helping people physically do sex. Okay. Oh, that's such a, okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Thank you for cleaning that up. <laughs> yeah. You always got to bring it back. and act, Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You cleared that up for me. All right. Now I can get, forget about so that. So I'm not a sex <laughs> I help people with more of the emotional pieces that come with um, different sexual health issues, such as like a lot of people who have premature ejaculation issues suffer from a lot of anxiety. The same thing with women who might have what we call vaginismus, where they might not be able to open um, the vaginal canal in order to be penetrated. A lot of those are anxiety-based. Um, when it comes to desires or inability to orgasm, there's different emotional pieces to that. Um, also, when someone's had cancer, there's all kinds of different spaces where someone might have to grieve a loss of a functioning, and that's what my job would be is to help them with that process. Wow, that's interesting. How much is a misconception of, you know, your clients or people that you work with or, you know, you deal with comes from porn, how, how sex works? That's a good question because... Um, I'll say a good amount may, I feel like, I, for one, I like to tell people I am not anti-porn. I think porn can be a useful tool and useful sense of entertainment. I think for younger people, um, they may get a lot of misconceptions when it comes to how sex is done by porn. And I always like to tell people, like, what you see on porn is not actually how sex is really done when you're with an intimate partner. There's mm -hmm. a lot of showing up. There's a lot of performance elements to that. Um, for me and what I do, I don't really see that in the therapy room, but in the educational spaces, definitely a lot of misinformation comes from porn, especially when it comes to things such as squirting. Um, everyone thinks that women are supposed to squirt just like men ejaculate. <laughs> That's just not really how it works. A lot of the story that you see in porn is really someone urinating on camera and it's staged. Um, Oh. So all I have to say, and then there are people who can for larger amounts, but typically if someone's actually having a female ejaculatory experience, 
it's not going to be quite what you see on camera. Okay. I'm learning something today. So basically for you, you, you deal with more of the, like the mental health associated with, I guess, a sex dysfunction? Yes. In the communication aspect, that can get in the way um, where people aren't necessarily communicating what their needs are, uh, what their Well, I have a question. It, do you find that it's because people had experiences too early in life that's what's affecting them later on? Like the exposure to sex was like not at an appropriate time in their life or the level of maturity or understanding what was going on. I mean, that's an interesting question. So I'm going to try to answer that. I like to start with just saying babies masturbate in utero. So we are sexual beings from, from the womb to the tomb. Really? So in essence, I believe a lot of us feel like sexuality is something that comes there are probably some de- developmental pieces of it, yes, you know, especially when you're dealing with partner play. But when it comes to self-play and exploring pleasure, I think there's different messages that are being given from a very early age. Like when someone is changing someone, a, a child's diaper, do they swat their hand away when they touch their private area or do they just kind of gently move it? You know, when they catch your child maybe touching themselves, I don't know very many children that don't enjoy running around naked in the house sometimes at different points. (laughs) Do you say, scream at them, or do you just let them go free? You know, or do you, how do you handle those things? Those are different things that you're sending messages on when it comes to sexuality and pleasure. And I think a lot of the challenges that I see in my office isn't necessarily that people are not getting, are having sex or encounters too early, but they're just not being informed appropriately through the, a very comprehensive sexual health lens. So, you know, most people don't have conversations about what sex, what sexual pleasure looks like and what how to communicate, how to negotiate, how to express your needs. Um, and that just kind of transfers throughout the lifespan. And, you know, most people aren't getting even comprehensive sex education, just the basics, let alone some of the deeper issues when it comes to communication. So I think those are probably the primary things that come into my office, as well as just a lot of religious shame around, yes. you know, what is pleasurable and what is not for them. Yeah, let's talk about the education. So how would that as a parent, right, when is the time and how does that work? Because I know, you know, you didn't, I didn't even growing up, it wasn't something that we spoke about. All it did was like, don't do it until you're married. That's, that's the only conversation that you really have. I think it needs to be an ongoing conversation where you're watching your children and what their activities are. Personally, I think that children should kind of at least know basics of how to communicate what their body parts are and also how to communicate if something is going on that is not necessarily okay for them or doesn't feel right or how to kind of have the signals of what abuse looks like. You know, I tell people all the time, you know, people say, oh, this is an age appropriate to talk to a child about. But I'm like, a lot of people, especially predators, are hoping that the child doesn't have the information or knowledge of how to communicate and really think about it. So if you're starting from a young age telling someone like, oh, that's your, those are your, um, that's your penis and, and vagina and vulva, you know, 
that's something you can play with. But if someone touches you there, you know, you need to let us know and just not say, if someone touches you there, I'm going to kill them. Because then that, they probably won't tell you that because usually it's someone whom they love and care about. So you kind of want to make sure you're kind of giving children the basic information about what's okay. You know, if you want to go in your room and play with your, your teddy bear, you know, hump your teddy bear, go ahead and do that. But you don't do that in public. You don't show, expose yourself in public. You you do this in private space. This is your private time. Yeah. But those are, and all I'm saying is that it should be a continuous conversation and there's ways to make it very sex positive as you go along. And some of it you have to kind of read your children to know where they're at in the conversation. Wow, that's interesting. Now, is it important for children to see parents not being so much intimate, but more or less being affectionate to each other? And if they don't see things like that, it does affect them in their adult life. Um, It definitely is important for kids to see their parents be affectionate with each other as well as with them. I mean, not inappropriately um, sexual with with their children, but just loving and comforting. Uh, And because one thing that, you know, one of the famous sex therapists, Esther Perel, says, she's like, show me how you were loved and I'll show you how you love. I think she said something to that effect. So if they see whatever, I always do, whenever I do my assessments, I'm always asking about, how did they? How did someone see their parents interact with with each other, even if they weren't married or with other partners? And how do, did your parents interact with you? And typically, if someone grows up in an environment where everyone is independent, they're not really emotionally connected, affectionate. Usually, that's what you're going to bring into your your marital. Um, well, not marital, but your adult relationship. So. Um, it's just, it is important for your kids to, or just, yeah, it's important for kids to kind of see what you want them to model for their relationship. Oh, that's interesting. Now, with your demographics of your clients, uh, you, you mostly perceive people of color, uh, men and women, or is like you have a variety of people that you do see? And across that board, are there issues similar, some different, or it's just basically they all have like the common theme issue that they're all dealing with, which is the anxiety, the trauma, the stress or things like that. Um, I have a very, very diverse clientele base. It's interesting. My intern who's with me, he's like, this is the most diverse place I've ever been. I've ever worked at. <laughs> Meaning, you know, I see all races. I have a lot of people of color um, it, within my practice. Um, I see a lot of different relationship types. So some people might be polyamorous, some are monogamous, um, different ranges in, in, in many different areas. Um, I will say when it comes to, there are trends when it comes to people of color versus people who might be of the majority group. It doesn't, I always have to say, we all have similar issues, right? Like, I don't want to say, oh, just because mm-hmm. you're, um, you know, there's a lot of common myths about especially black sexuality, that if you are black, you are not going to have any issues sexually. Or if you are brown, you know, from the Latinx community, there's nothing going to be wrong with, you know, these are areas you should be struggling in, if that makes sense. And the reality is, statistically, it's, specifically, this is, some, this is a old stat. I wish we did more research on this 
that's current, we have more research, but black people actually are the, um, have the highest amount of sexual dysfunction of any group. Mm. And that's because of our healthcare concerns. You know, if you think about all the heart disease, prostate cancer, um, other things, even the way we don't communicate openly about sexual, sexual issues, those are all things that create dysfunction. So, you know, a lot of people, especially with diabetes, um, that can cause a whole lot of sexual dysfunction. Um, heart disease can cause different forms of dysfunction um, that we're just not really openly talking about. Makes sense. Wow. There's a lot of sense. In terms of your, um, your couples, I mean, uh, what is the most common um, issue they come in for? Like, are you seeing the most? Um, I feel like it's a trend. I have different trends. Mm-hmm. So right now, probably my two biggest trends are usually desire discrepancy where one mm. person wants sex more than the other. The second one is I see a lot of people who are entering into non-monogamous relationships and mm. how to navigate that. So those are the top two things that I see within couples. Yeah, so I mean, so I'm going to go right into the it got something that we're doing it we're dealing with too is the desire discrepancy when a couple comes in with that are you seeing the men having more desire than the women or vice versa so I always like to whenever I go into this topic I always <laughs> say, I say that do the whole gender stuff and I want to be inclusive of gender binary and yes. I mean gender non-binary and um, people on the spectrum but there are just certain sexual biological trends that you see. Of course, even yeah. will transition from taking testosterone or taking estrogen. There are certain things that happen naturally. Mm. It seems, or I've seen anecdotal knowledge about that, and there's probably some research on it too. Um, but I would say people who are estrogen driven or women, they typically will have more of a decline. Um, I do like there's more of a trend where you'll see more men who have a decline because now men are being more socialized to not be predatory and to be more mindful. So sometimes they can lose desire because they're trying not to be rapey of their partner, if that makes sense. Oh, my God. It makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. So that's causing a lot of issues when women will come in and say, you're supposed to want sex all the time. What's up with that? (laughs) They're trying to be good men, you know, and not be what they saw other people in their families to be. Um, yeah. But typically it is, I see more women who are struggling with um, not having quite the same level of desire. And I think our part of it is um, biological and part of it is socialized. I'm sorry, you said social? Yeah, yes. Like w- women are typically socialized to be, to have sex is the, the bottom priority. And if anything, sex is really more of a duty for their partner versus for themselves. And why do you think that's the case in terms of the social part? And going to patriarchy, <laughs> you know, um, just in the past, it was pretty much the woman's job to maintain the household while the man can do what they want. You know, like, Non-monogamy is not anything new. We've had brothels that were legal at different points in time in history. Um, the more money men had, the more power they had to have concubines and all kinds of other forms of, um, or 
different polygamous relationships um, that women weren't really able to have. Um, I think some of it has to do with um, resources in some ways of um, maintaining lineage and whose child is whose. So I think that's part of, there's a lot of different dynamics and reasons in history as to, to why women weren't, are socialized to, to not really pay attention to their sexuality. Wow. Well, Nina, you have to worry about that. I'm on a budget, so yeah, no compromise <laughs> for me. <laughs> but the thing, um, my other question to you is, how do you navigate that if it's so embedded or it's a hormonal thing? Like, how do you navigate that desire discrepancy? Um, the main thing I try to tell people to do is they have to prioritize sex and they have to kind of look at it from the lens of a wellness model versus a a relationship duty model, if that makes sense. Because if you already have like 20 things on your list and then now you feel like this is another burden, it just makes it even harder for people to want to connect with it. Um, but if you look at it at more from a space of, even though, you know, exercise people still look at it as a burden, <laughs> you know, if you look at it more from like the exercise diet model, you know, you take care of yourself. And the more you exercise, the better you feel and the more you actually crave it. So the same thing with sex is like, if you are on a regular regimen, the more it'll be satisfactory and the anxiety will decrease. And that's for both men, women gender non-binary or non-conforming people, um, the more you kind of make it part of your routine, the less anxious and the more um, pleasurable it can be long-term. So, guys, so it's always like those, the longer you go without it, the longer you can go without it is basically what you're saying. Yeah, and because it does, it will build up in anxiety and it will, um, it can also kind of build up like, erectile dysfunction as well as different issues when it comes to to lubrication for women and things like that or people with all this. But then on the flip side for the men, when that happens, then men are less inclined to, as you said, feel that desire of wanting to have sex because, you know, it's not there. The partner's not there because her mind's on other things or she's not Mm -hmm. interested. So, the man feels rejected. He's no longer looking at her. He's looking at other women, or he's just all of a sudden just not there, you know, emotionally and physically. I mean, that's correct. I mean, it, it becomes a vicious cycle. Interesting. Uh, this is an off the wall question. Do you think that a marriage can sustain without having sex? I mean, I hate to say most definitely. <laughs> <laughs> what? What? You're saying you're saying it can sustain. Yeah, I mean, most definitely. Most, okay. if we really think about what marriage is, and I hate to say this, but it is a contract. It's like mm-hmm. a business contract. <laughs> I got to so read the fine a relational um, connecting contract. So I'm trying to think of how to explain more of the research on that. But there are a lot of people who are in unhealthy, unhappy marriages. Now, if the question is, do I think it's a, a healthy situation and the most satisfying I would not necessarily agree with that, but there are plenty of sexless or minimal sex relationships out there that sustain that are sustaining today. Yeah, because the whole narrative would be like, once the sex is gone, it's over. And I, in my head, I was like, okay, yeah. Then and then at the same time, I'm like, 
maybe not because maybe they have more of a business or you know they they do other things that make each other happy i mean there are um four different styles sexual relationship styles Mm -hmm. um there's the first one is um traditional so those are people who kind of typically fall into the typical gender role um they're usually supported a lot by churches and traditional rules that relationship typically has the greatest longevity of all sexual relationship styles and relationships in general because they're just very well supported and you don't give up no matter what in some ways. And sometimes those systems are still very oppressive. So um, everybody has to decide which system they belong in. Mm. The second one is the best friend relationship style. And that one typically has the least amount of sex. Because, and most people get really upset when they hear that. Yeah, I'm sorry. Like, hmm, I'm trying to think. <laughs> but because people are overly close um, and kind of what we call clinically a mesh, it kind of takes away the eroticism. Because eroticism is built on mystery and kind of like a tug of war, kind of internal battle inside most for most people. So when you're best friends, it just kind of takes away from that. Um, then the third style is complementary. As for what the work I do, this is the style out for most relationships to be in, um, where both of you kind of have your own separate things, but you also do things together. So there's like room for mystery as well as room for um, for engagement and not feeling like you're in two separate households. You don't want to be overly you don't want to be disengaged, but you want to be kind of complimentary. And then the last style that has the best sex, or not the best, but the most um, erotic sexual style are the emotionally expressive people. And this style usually fits into more of the domestic violence abuse cycle. Um, and, <laughs> and I hate to say it like that, but it, it is kind of, if you really even think about people that you know, those are usually the ones that fit in that. But what happens with those relationships is that people tend to tire themselves out, so then they end up breaking up. But it's usually more of an emotionally abusive, and the and also they use sex kind of to kind of to heal the the um, abuse cycle. So it's not necessarily that they're having great sex; it's more so that they are they need that relief from all the drama and damage that they're doing to one another. Wow. I'm just like, my head is spinning right now. First of all, I'm trying to categorize us. But then as you said things, I'm thinking of friends and relation and, that I have and their relationships. And the one that really stands out to me is the best friend theory. Because mm-hmm. I, I, I'm not sure of their sex life, but I have I had friends that to me, they seem like they, they were best friends, but I don't know their sex life. But it would be kind of interesting to know. Well, we can find them on the show and ask them. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> didn't really get down to that. But uh, let me ask you a question. So those clients of yours that have anxieties, you know, the stress, um, do they consider using, um, I guess, maybe even cannabis or CBD oil to help ease them, to have them relax so they can actually try to engage in sexuality? Um, I mean, their sex life. But then you have those clients who overdo it too much to the point where they just are inept when it comes to sex. 
it's it's very it's a very tricky um, space because with cannabis it is known for creating premature ejaculation or create higher levels of that. So if you're taking it to reduce stress, <laughs> but you're taking something that kind of increases it, it can it, it can create another bad cycle that's not as productive. But I would say for more. I recommend it for more of my clients who have more chronically ill clients who have problems with not with with pain during intercourse or pain in their body in general. And when they use, or actually, probably, I'm trying to think of how to say this. I probably would say I recommend the cannabis more for people involved than people with penises because of just the side effects that can happen. Not to say that people with penises can't have enjoyable sex with cannabis. But they do have to be mindful that there is a potential side effect of premature ejaculation that can happen. Yeah, because I know my experience with it. Um, I'm there, but I'm not there. It's like I, I'm in the part of the experience, but I'm somewhere, somewhere totally in spaces. So my body's there, but my mind is like it feels like my spirit is somewhere else. It's an interesting experience while doing that. Now, psychedelics, how will that play a role eventually? Because it seems like it's starting to pick up a lot of momentum. It, it, research right now is showing similar effects with it, mm. um, where it will create less function for people with penises. Um, but I'm not anti it. I think what I like to tell people when it comes to any form of substances, I, I tell people the main substance that most people use for sex is alcohol. And alcohol has a lot of negative effects. And it can be positive depending on how it's used. But if people kind of explore substances, you really need to know how your body functions sober. And then as you start to know and master your body without substances, then you can kind of be aware of what substances you use that can complement or detract from what you're doing. Okay, so you're saying you're not, because I know, like, for a lot of women, most of the time, they'll have, sometimes they have the drunk, or they had a couple of glasses of wine, and they feel like it relaxes them for sex. Mm-hmm. And so, you're, are you, recom- you're, so just to reiterate, you're, you're recommending that, or you're recommending to do, I, like, do both? I, rec- I recommend, I recommend you know your body sober, okay. and also mindful of the side effects that can happen when you're using substances because even with alcohol it can help make someone uninhibited so that they're more engaged in some ways but it also decreases lubrication you know so if if you have to pick your battles based on your body so i always tell people like i enjoy peanuts but my friend who eats if they have peanuts around them they will die (laughs) Yeah. So different things work differently with everybody's body. So you have to kind of know how your body works without substances and then kind of introduce yourself to how it works with substances is is really what I try to recommend because it, it has different impacts on everybody. So some people won't have any erection issues with marijuana and then a lot of people do, you know. So um, and some people it can help them. I mean, not just marijuana, but just all drugs, but marijuana specifically. That's why I say I recommend it more for people with vulvas. It can definitely relax. It can help in lubrication. It can help with engagement. Um, however, with people with penises, it, it's not 
quite the same effect all the time. So, um, and then even with when it comes to psychedelics, like if you're doing Molly, it can help someone become very engaged and connected. But if you're doing mushrooms, it can feel very, um, depending on who you're with, it can potentially feel unconsensual, you know, so it, it has a lot of different, there's a lot of different elements that come into play when you're introducing um, substances into to play spaces. Uh-huh. Now, do you get a lot of uh, elderly couples coming in, people over 65, 70? Not as much as I would like. Yeah. I, I don't think culturally, especially for this area, there's enough education in that area. But I will say that before I got into this field, I was working in long-term care. And when I was working in long-term care, I would have people ask me questions all the time about (laughs) sexuality um, when it came to aging. So I don't think it's that there's not a need. I just think it's not really something that they're seeking. But if if I think if it was accessible and it was coming to their spaces, they would definitely, people of all ages definitely need help, especially when you think about mobility issues, um, when it comes to needing assistive, assistive aid, you know, when it comes to what does it look like when your partner has dementia or Alzheimer's. Yeah. Um, I had one client, one, one person tell me how their um, parents had a routine of having sex daily, once a day. But because the dad had Alzheimer's, he was, I don't know if this is actually how it went. <laughs> was it 10 times? Alzheimer's, he would always forget that they had sex. <laughs> and so they kept having like, more. They had more. Like, he wasn't like, I need to have sex. He didn't remember. He's like, where's my one time? We didn't have sex <laughs> one time. So, <laughs> he kept, <laughs> yeah. I, I, he keeps bugging me for it. But, um, <laughs> that, a, that a bad thing? I don't, I don't know. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's the one time dementia actually comes in. Handy. <laughs> I guess. I don't know. Talk to the partner about that. <laughs> well, I mean. <laughs> so my question is, um, in terms of speaking up, like, I think a common thing may be speaking up to a partner about, um, I guess things that pleasure them that do not, particularly things that maybe the partner is doing that um, the other partner does not like. Yes, like, I know. How do you like? How do the? How do you encourage people to kind of speak up without being offensive? I mean, I think this is kind of like when I think about sex education, mm-hmm. I think about life skills education in general. Like we do not have good comprehensive communication skills in general. Most people don't. Most people don't know how to communicate to express their needs about finances, about cleaning, about taking care of things around the house. So it's like if you are not able to communicate basic things, how are you going to communicate something as sensitive as this? Um, So part of me feels like we have to get better at just being able to express our needs and communicate and do it in a way I, I was telling someone this, I'm like, if we all kind of got, got into a space of curiosity, it would break down a lot of barriers for us. But instead of being curious, everyone kind of goes into a state of either competition or defensiveness. And we kind of have to stop instead of saying, Oh, my partner just said something 
that's threatening to me, you have to ask more questions like, what does that mean? Um, I can say that felt cold, and I could be talking about an emotional coldness. I could be talking about a physical coldness. I could be talking about cold in many different languages, <laughs> you know, different, many different reasons based on how I define it. And I just think that when it comes to expressing needs to partners, one, you have to do it in a sensitive way, but also the other person has to be prepared to hear it and be curious about what the other person needs. We got a long way to go. Yeah, because I'm just thinking about when you um, want to ask your partner questions, how do you not offend them by asking the question? Because they may take it personal as if you're stating there's something wrong with them if you were asking questions. Yeah, I mean, I think some of it's just going to be trial and error. Um, and then sometimes you just have to have, you know, someone like me, you know, <laughs> to kind of be a mediator kind of thing. Yeah. Mediator to help, um, break the barriers to the conversation. because usually when people are having sexual issues, there's usually multiple things underlining it. Not that's not just sex. Like I always tell people, I like being a sex therapist because really what the issues are, it's an iceberg. So sex is just the tip of the iceberg. But we got all this stuff at the bottom that we have to clean up to make the relationship healthy and good again outside of just the sexual piece. Mm, makes a lot of sense. Uh, in reference to your position as executive director of the Tennessee Alliance of Sexual Health, what is your role there? Like, what do you do? So pretty much with that, we host monthly lunch and learns for people who are interested in becoming professionals in sex and sexuality. So it can be anyone who's in social services or medical care, because really no matter what area you're dealing with people in those arenas, sex is going to come up at some point. Um, and we talk about, we have, there are two times a month, and we kind of talk about different things. Like today we had someone talk about fantasies and kind of um, teaching people not to judge fantasies because all fantasies are normal. Um, there's no right or wrong when it comes to it. And a lot of people, it's like people want to shame people for having fantasies. And also kind of he was talking about some of the implementation concerns that can happen when people are going into fantasies. So that's like one piece. Um, we might talk about cannabis and sexual health and like what are the impacts, benefits and pros of using something to that or psychedelics because every substance has its own um, pros and cons. Um, again, based on the person who's using them. Um, but those that's kind of what we do with that. And we also have um, a scholarship fund with, within that program because, like I said, for me, I've been the only person of color in the state of Tennessee for a while practicing, and we need more people, <laughs> you know, doing this work. Um, there's too many people who need help, and we need people who can ad adequately help people in these areas. It's true. Thank you for doing this uh, because it is it, it, in our minds. It's like, is this really a, a real issue? And as, as you speak to more and more people, you're like, wow, it is something really problematic. Uh, I mean, especially for us as parents of a child with uh, needs, it is you know taxing mentally, emotionally, and physically. So at times, you know, we are trying to work together as opposed to you know being at odds and we're trying to figure things out. But we're so exhausted at the end of the day intimacy is almost like pushed to the, you know, to the back burner until we just like, just able to, to get a day just to relax. So I can, I can see that. 
and our culture tells us to not prioritize it, you know? Yeah, so basically it does. We yeah. were kind of trained like, hey, this is going to be the bottom of the bottom. And really, you know, I like the saying, you got to pay yourself first. Makes sense. Makes sense. Can you tell us some more about, um, uh, says you're a writer and educate, educator for Pure Romance and Bedroom Candy? So um, I, like I said, I started with Bedroom Candy as a sales consultant. That was like my first issue. Well, that was, I won't say my first because like I said, I've been doing sexual health work and reproductive health work um, since high school. I mean, since, yeah, since I was <laughs> since high school, but really doing like sex toys. Um, I was working with Bedroom Candy and I did some blogs and educational pieces for them as I was going through my process of becoming certified. Um, so I can't think of, it's been a while since I've written for them, but now I'm with Pure Romance, which is another toy company that does more of the home parties, more focused towards women. And I do monthly blog with them on different things surrounding sex and sexuality. Very nice. Now, are they, are they going to be ideas of trying to include men into these? Well, Bedroom Candy actually does. Oh, Okay. So bedroom can and actually pure romance has some toys for um for people with penises, but it's not quite. They do they are very women focused, okay. and I think it should be more trans inclusive in that. But bedroom candy is inclusive. I actually like bedroom candy as like a starter brand for people mm-hmm. who are kind of just getting introduced into toys and different things. Um, they're very. Uh, friendly for for all sexes you know it's not like someone bringing in a 10 foot dildo you know (laughs) oh my god (laughs) that's too too um intrusive but it's more like it's delicate and it's a nice way to kind of be introduced okay that sounds nice that's not nice wow thank Uh, you so much yeah i've learned a whole lot (laughs) Uh, yeah, I don't even know where to start now. <laughs> but this is very informative. I, we really appreciate your time and sharing all this information with us. I mean, I think we could have gone on another hour with this. <laughs> and what I like about this interview is that even for me, I feel more lighthearted because I was the uptight person about sex. Like, I still kind of feel like, you know, only naughty girls do that and it's, and it's sinful taboo. and taboo. But I think talking to you, like even like help me feel like this is this is okay like this is not a taboo even though I'm married and have a child like behind me feels like that little girl like this is a taboo thing to do and and it's not I think because we don't really talk about it enough Mm -hmm. and I think we're trained we're conditioned to believe that it's not natural and that it should be secretive and things like that and it really is a part of our humanity that should be treated just like someone um, taking care of their diet. You know, <laughs> you know, we talk about, hey, what keto, vegan, whatever thing that we're doing, we should be able to talk about what lubricants or protection barrier methods we're using as well and what pleasure, what things bring us pleasure. Wow, you're right. Wonderful. You're right. Thank you. So if people wanted to get in touch with you, how would they be able to reach out? So I have two branches. Um, one is Pandora's Awakening. That is kind of like my broader mental health um, group practice. 
and that's where people can, if they're in need of any kind of support in the mental health or sexual health realm, they can go there. And then to work with me personally, I have my own website, ReneeBurwell.com, and people can schedule consultations um, or coaching, coaching or therapeutic consultations in that arena. Definitely. And now that we have a website, so we'll be hosting your page as well, a link so people can reach you too, just in case. And also, you know, if you are on Pure Romance, the Buzz blog, you can see some of my writings and things like that there. I also have a YouTube that has not been that updated, but if people just need access to information, it's called Quiet Storms Corner, where they can get access to more information um, around these topics. Awesome. Again, thank you very much, Renee, for joining us tonight. Yeah, no worries. Well, thank you for having me. And if y'all have any other questions or need anything else, feel free to reach out. Oh, yeah, will do. Poppy will. Wow. (laughs) Didn't even wait for me. Okay, you definitely will, I guess. (laughs) But thank you again. No problem. We'll have a good night. You too. Thank you. I'm Josh Kincaid, Capital Markets Analyst and host of your Cannabis Business Podcast, The Talking Hedge, and newest member on PodCon X. So come on over and check out The Talking Hedge. We talk about business news, interviews, investments, events, all that stuff. So come nerd out with me over at The Talking Hedge. You can find me at thetalkinghedgepodcast.com or on all your favorite podcast platforms. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, or don't, and I'm out. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey there, this is Cheryl Murray Powell Esquire, and I'm the host of the Terps in the City podcast. I am a cannabis agricultural dietary supplement and trade attorney. I'm also a hemp farmer, and I've been recently named to the list of High Times Magazine's top 100 influencers in cannabis. I'm inviting you to follow me along my journey as I move back to New York to support the adult use market there. You're going to get a chance to listen to conversations with some of my friends along the way. I look forward to seeing you at Terps in the City.